My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. I'm glad that you have joined us on this, uh, I guess it's still winter. Like, I feel like we can't make up our minds right now. It's kind of driving me insane. Like, I don't care if it's 40 or 60, but we just need to pick it for the sake of, like, my head and my sinuses. Anybody else feeling me there? The temperature changes? Yeah. I just wish we would pick a season right now. I'm glad that you're here, that we found our way inside on this brisk uh, Sunday morning. I hear it's going to be cold all day. We're glad if you joined with us online, especially those of you who are with us for the first time, hope that you find this to be a welcoming uh, and uh, spiritually uplifting morning here at Lover's Lane. So, like I said, my name is Scott, one of the pastors here at Lover's Lane. Uh, we've been in the middle of a sermon series that we're ending today called Why Church? If you haven't been here, that's okay. Uh, essentially, what we've been talking about is we know that the church is changing in America specifically, that uh, as culture continues to shift, as we continue to wrestle with a new way of understanding how faith and spirituality and church fits into this new American culture, um, we know that, that the church is changing. Some people are worried it's dying. I don't think that it is, and hopefully in this sermon series, you've gotten the impression that we don't think that it is here at Lover's Lane. We do believe that it's changing. I also think that it might be returning to some of the ancient practices that made us probably, I think, the most vibrant and healthy we ever were in the ancient church in those first 300 years that we existed in the Roman Empire. Um, and we know that these days, people are going to need more and more of a reason to understand why they need to show up, Right? Um, in the past, people just sort of came to church because that was the cultural expectation. That's not any longer the case, especially on the coasts, but even more so, we're feeling that, even, we're feeling that now, even in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Dallas, Texas, right? People don't feel the need to show up to church, and so if they're going to go to church, they need to know why. Why is church something that I should invest myself or my family in? We've been sort of circling these different questions and these different answers to that question of why church. We've talked about the church's role in addressing need. We've talked about the church's role in creating community. We've talked about the church's role in teaching and proclaiming love we've, and morality. And we've talked about the church's role in encouraging authentic living. And yet, I feel like we've kind of been circling around this one really big question that we haven't yet gotten to. We've, we've addressed parts of the question, but not really the core of the question. And that question is this. What is the primary purpose of the church? That's a question that we have got to get crystal clear about as we move forward, continuing through the 21st century and beyond. What is the primary purpose of the church? Because we've talked about some important aspects of the church, and I think that they are even essential aspects of the church, but I don't know that any of the things that we've talked about are the primary purpose of the church. What I mean is when you strip everything else away, when you strip everything else away from the church, why does the church exist? What is it that we offer to the world? What is it that inspired Christ to form us so that we believe that, what inspired Christ to form us that we believe that no one else, no other organization, no other movement is offering to the world? Because if we can't answer that, what it is that we bring to the world that is special and is different and is unique, if we can't answer that kind of question, then I fear that we will continue to lose ground in a culture that is increasingly distracted. But if we can answer that question, what is our primary purpose? I believe that while our numbers may continue to decline, the impact and health of the church that we see in America will be stronger than we've ever known it before. I don't think numbers dictate your strength. 
And to help us in this conversation today, I want us to turn our attention to a letter written by Paul found in the New Testament. This is the letter to the Romans. Uh, this is found right after the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles with you, if you're on your Bible app, you can open up to the book of Acts chapter 15. Now, the letter to the Romans is considered by most to be Paul's masterpiece work, right? This is, this is considered to be his best work in the New Testament, maybe even the most important theological text in the entire New Testament. Uh, I've personally found this letter to be really helpful in the last few years uh, as a United Methodist clergy person, uh, as we as a denomination have struggled uh, to understand who we are in the midst of some infighting and some tension over debates around human sexuality. I, 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 the reason I love the, Paul's letter to the church in Rome is because Paul is writing to a church in Rome that is deeply divided. There's a lot of tension there. And if you've heard me preach on the letter to the Romans, you maybe have heard this before, but I want to remind you, or for those who are here for the first time, there's this division present between these really traditional Jews and these really progressive Gentiles, and they're not sure why they need each other. Have you ever been in a group like this before? The Jews want the Gentiles to act more Jewish. They want them to follow the ancient Jewish customs and laws. And the Gentiles want the Jews to ditch the Old Testament and the laws and all these things that they think are relics of the past. And for 14 chapters, 14 chapters, Paul, it's a long letter, guys. This is not a tweet. Paul lays out, Paul lays out some really incredible Christian doctrine that he's kind of inventing for the very first time. That's the mind-blowing part of it. This is doctrine that he's establishing that will come to be foundational for the church for the next 2,000 years. It is an incredible work. But we're not going to read any of that stuff today. I hope that that makes you want to go home and read Romans this week at Thanksgiving. When you're at the, the Thanksgiving table and someone's like, why are you reading your Bible? You're just like, I just got to read Romans. That'd be awesome. Uh, today I want us to hear what Paul has to say at the end of his letter. After he's laid out all of this incredible theology, all of this incredible weaving of old and new and ancient and modern. And then we find ourselves in chapter 15. And he's wrapping things up. And he's about to say goodbye. And uh, if you've come here for a length of time, you know that I love to pay attention to the last things that people say, because I think the last thing we say is usually the thing we've been waiting to say the whole time, amen? If you've ever been in a conversation with someone, you know everything they're saying is not really important. They're waiting to get to something. That's really what they wanted to say the entire time. You ever been in a conversation like that? Paul can be that way. Romans 15 is what he's been trying to say the whole time. And so we're going to start in Romans 15, chapter, or chapter 15, verse 14. Before we read that, I want us to center ourselves in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to make the text come alive for us today. Gracious God, we give you thanks that we don't have to answer questions alone. That when we have really big questions like, why does the church exist? We can turn to your word. We can turn to the leadership of Paul, who after 2,000 years still seems to be getting this right. And so God, as we prepare to go into your word once again, we just ask that you would make it come alive for us, that your Holy Spirit would bless it, make it leap off of the screens, off the pages of our Bibles, and into our hearts, that it might change the way that we live. Which says we pray, amen. Beginning in verse 14, it says this, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, with, filled with all knowledge and are able to teach each other. It helps me to be a minister, or I'm sorry, but I've written to you in a sort of daring way. 
partly to remind you of what you already know. I'm writing to you in this way because of the grace that was given to me by God. It helps me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. I'm working as a priest of God's gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles can be acceptable and made holy by the Holy Spirit. So in Christ Jesus, I brag about things that have to do with God. I don't dare speak about anything except what Christ has done through me to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. He did it by what I've said and what I've done. By the power of signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. So I've completed the circuit of preaching Christ's gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. I should have practiced that one. In this way, I have a goal to preach the gospel where they haven't heard of Christ yet. So that I won't be building on someone else's foundation. Instead, as it's written, those who hadn't been told about him will see. And those who hadn't heard him will understand. Paul's words here, I believe, are critically important for us today because they are words written to a church that had lost sight of the main thing. The church in Rome had lost sight of the main thing. They had gotten distracted. They had gotten bogged down by personal agendas and congregational infighting and individual pet projects that were not the primary purpose of the church. He spends time in Romans talking about sausage and pork. It's not the primary purpose of the church, right? Paul's final words are meant to turn them back to something that he says they already know. He says, I know you already know this. These words are as much for us today as they were for the church in Rome in the first century. I mean, how distracted have we become as a church, I mean in general, as a church in America, where we are most interested in debating hot-button issues or fighting for diminishing political power or waging culture wars in an increasingly globalized world? We've lost sight of the main thing. And Paul, I think, is here in Romans 15, ready to remind us what it is. Before I say what I think Paul is calling us to as a church, I want to, make sh I want to take some time to talk about what I don't believe the church is primarily. Because I think there's a lot of distractions or pitfalls that we can fall into, especially as we move forward and we try to figure out who we are in this shifting culture. I think there's a lot of things that we are not primarily. And they might be attractive things. They might be things that we think could do a lot of good in the world, but they are not the church. And if we try to be something that God has not called us to be, we will not succeed because God needs us to be more. The first thing, the church is not just a charity. This might, some of these are going to frustrate you because you're going to say, that's what I thought the church was. In the first week of this series, okay, the church is not just a charity. In the first week of this series, I preached a message about the importance of the church responding to need. And I still stand by that message. I think that the church has to be able to respond to the needs of its community and the world in a real and compelling way if we want to reach the next generation. And yet, I think this might be the most difficult pitfall of all because there is so much talk about how younger people care about missions and outreach and about volunteering and service and, and, and that those things are such a high priority and, and those things are important. I think the church has to be about those things. They need to be an essential part of who we are. But if we make the mistake of thinking that we are simply another charity it just happens to have a cross. I think the church is going to fail. Why? 
because churches cannot address tangible needs of their communities as efficiently or effectively as other charities will. If you want to impact homelessness in the city of Dallas, Austin Street Shelter is a great place to get involved. If you want to end hunger in North Texas, the North Texas Food Bank, the North Texas Food Bank is a fantastic organization. They, they are a well-oiled machine. If you want to help domestic abuse survivors, the Genesis Women's Shelter needs your support. Those charities, those 501c3s are very effective at addressing very tangible needs, and we will never as a church, be able to address homelessness or hunger or domestic violence to the same degree that those kind of organizations can. I, the list could go on, right? We can help them. We can equip them. We can send volunteers. Don't get me wrong. There is a lot that we can do, but they are simply go, going to be better at doing what they do than we ever can be because that's not really our primary call. Now, I'm thankful to live in a time when charities seem to be more abundant and effective than ever before, uh, but the danger in this time is that churches who try to be charities will ultimately fail because, honestly, we're just not as good as they are at what they do. Y'all with me? You hear me? The charitable work is important, but if that's what we think is our primary purpose, we won't survive because as an organization, we can't be as effective and efficient at addressing those needs. You with me? Okay, let's keep going. I'm not sure you are, but we're just going to keep plowing ahead. This is going to be a sermon that makes a lot of people mad. The church is not just a social club. Now, this is what the church was for a while there in the mid-20th century of America. This is what the church used to be all about during the 60s and 70s and 80s. The church is not just a social club. Lover's Lane actually used to be famous for this huge singles ministry that they called the Meat Market. Do you get it? It's kind of funny and also gross at the same time. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I should have said that. And there's a lot of people... <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is, I'm sorry. There's a lot of people who come to church these days, not just Lover's Lane, primarily because what they are interested in is finding uh, other people and finding their social group. They're looking for community. They're looking for friends. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a good thing. I think that churches have to be about building community. One week in this series, just like we talked about addressing needs, we talked about building community as a part of what the church does. It's an important part of the Christian witness. But we cannot make the mistake of thinking that the church's primary purpose is to build community. People can find community in so many different ways these days. So one of the favorite things that I do as a pastor is officiate at weddings. Half of the weddings that I officiate, the couples met where? Not in church. Where'd they meet? Online. You know why they met online? Because online is way better at it than churches are, right? Online, you've got questionnaires that are like 500 questions long. You've got uh, profiles that have all this exhaustive details. You've got algorithms. We don't have algorithms. <laughs> we got like mixers or something. Do churches still do mixers? I don't know. I don't think we do those. We can't compete. <laughs> we can't compete with Match.com. And honestly, even when it comes to just finding friends, there are so many other ways to find community today that just did not exist in the past. You go to the local coffee shop. You go to your tailgate party. You go to a neighborhood block party. You can go online. You know young people are finding community online in more bigger ways than ever before. It's one reason we stream. 
People are looking to churches less and less to fill their social calendars. And in fact, I think people are busier today than ever before. And when they come to church, they're terrified the church is going to try to fill their social calendar. They're like, I can't add anything else. I am full. Please don't make me go to something else. So if we think that becoming a social club is a primary purpose, then church, we are going to fail. Number three, the church is not just a place to learn how to be nice. This is the best way that I could come up with to say that what I do is not the primary purpose of the church. That Sunday school classes or preaching on a Sunday morning service, those sermons, those are not the primary purpose of church. I feel like a lot of sermons that get preached could be summed up in my dad's favorite rule growing up in our house. This is the rule we heard all the time from my dad, just be nice. Right? If you took Jesus in the New Testament, right, you just sort of summed it up. That's, that's Jeff Gilliland going, just be nice. Right? Sometimes I think it's that exhausted too. Just be nice. I feel like Jesus is kind of an exhausted dad at some times, right? <laughs> just be nice. It's not that hard. It doesn't take a genius to figure out how, that life goes a lot better when you treat people nicely. Amen. I mean, sure, Jesus says it really well, and there's a lot of great pithy statements in the Bible. But honestly, the Bible has a lot of confusing stuff in it too, right? I mean, Jesus says, just be nice, but then there's another time he like curses a fig tree or something. Like, what does that mean? That's another sermon for another day. But it's in there, right? I thought it was supposed to be nice, but now I hate figs. I don't know. And for as many sermons that have been preached on the love of God in America, Lord knows that American pulpits have preached just as much about the judgment and the punishment of God as well. Now, obviously, I think that preaching is important. Otherwise, I'd be in the wrong line of work. I think that teaching is a critical aspect of the church. I think it's an essential aspect of the church. Jesus was called rabbi or teacher for, by his disciples for most of his ministry, but I don't think that's our primary purpose, just like I know Jesus' primary purpose was not teaching either. He did not come to this earth to be a great teacher. These days, people can learn how to be better and nicer people anywhere There are a lot simpler books to read than the Bible, amen? Go to the self-help section at Amazon. There's a lot simpler books to teach you how to be a good person. TED Talks are way more interesting than my average sermon. I know that. I'm comfortable with that. It's okay. And yet, I think some churches incorrectly believe that people simply cannot learn how to be morally good without the church, that that's our primary purpose, to teach people how to be nice, Let me tell you, I have too many atheist friends and I have too many friends who have no relationship with the church who are lovely, amazing, wonderfully nice people. They are morally good people despite the fact that they don't really have a faith or they don't really have a relationship with the church. And if all we can say as the church is, come to church, you'll learn how to be nice, like they're going to go literally anywhere else because they don't need help with that. Between self-help books, motivational speakers, TED Talks on YouTube, if we think that our primary purpose is to teach people to be nicer or more successful, we will fail. Okay, one last way that we'll fail. Then Then it'll be fun, I promise. One last one. The church is not just a place to be yourself. Now, last week, Reagan brought an amazing message about authenticity in the church and the important role that authentic living has in the Christian life and in Christian community. If we cannot be real at church, then we might as well close the doors. Amen? That's where you say amen. Amen. 
I hope that we can be real at church. I hope that is a core essential of who we are. But I don't think that our primary purpose is about giving people space to, quote, keep it real. The local tattoo parlor, the biker bar, the AA meeting, these are places that keep it way more real than we do in church, yeah? They let you know what they think. They have nothing to hide. They don't really care about keeping up the facade of normal. We aspire to keep it real in church, but I know on a Sunday morning when I ask you how you do it and you say you're doing fine and I look in your eyes, I know everything's not okay, but you won't just come out and say it. Like the biker bar, the tattoo parlor, the AA meeting, they don't play pretend. And I, for one, wish that the church looked more like a tattoo parlor or a bar or an AA meeting, honestly. Anybody else with me? I wish the church looked more like those places. I wish we had the level of courage and community and authenticity that those places do. But I also know that the world today has many places like them where being yourself is encouraged and supported and celebrated. Places that allow you to fly your freak, fleet, oh, freak flag. Ooh, that's a tongue twister. Better than the church ever could. Places that make that their mission. That is their primary purpose for you to be yourself. If we think our primary purpose is letting people keep it real, I think that we will build something interesting. I think that we could even be, be something that's really helpful for a lot of people, but I don't think that we would be the church if that's our primary purpose. And so why are we here then? If we're not primarily a charity, if we're not primarily a social club, if we're not primarily a place that teaches people how to be nice, if we're not primarily a place where people can be themselves, if none of those are our primary purpose, then when you strip all those things away that are good and needed but not our primary purpose, then what on earth are we here for? I was 12 when the original X-Men film came out in the year 2000. Didn't think this is where we were going, did you? <laughs> X-Men, we got, look at that. Oh my gosh, can you imagine 12-year-old Scott seeing that movie poster? I'm pretty sure somewhere in a 21st century Fox marketing office, next to Target demographic, it was just my picture going, <laughs> you know, I was a brace-faced mouth breather at the time, it's fine. Um, that movie was made for me. This movie had everything. It had Wolverine. It had CGI. It had Halle Berry. Yeah? Yeah? Come on now, 12-year-old Scott. Yes. Yes, Halle Berry. I loved this movie. You can take Halle Berry off the screens now. I'm just keeping it real. I loved this movie. I loved the story of these mutants. Most of them were teenagers in the story, coming to grips with their powers that made them strong, but also hated by the world. And it just resonated with my little nerdy adolescent heart. I would stand in front of my bedroom mirror, and I wouldn't pretend to like talk to the girl I had a crush on or, or, to, or to fight my bully that was bothering me at school. I would try to pretend like my mutant powers were manifesting to see if it had happened yet, right? And like, I did that. I finally stopped doing that like last week. No, I'm kidding. I still do it. I still do it. We, a man can dream. I don't need to regenerate like Wolverine. I just want my hair to grow back. That's all I need. Um, I love this movie. And, and a lot of people did. We didn't know it at the time, but X-Men would kick off this public infatuation with Marvel movies that is still going strong 20 years later and shows no sign of dying. There's like 87 Marvel movies coming out in the next two years, I feel like. This past week, we lost Stan Lee. 
who, along with Jack Kirby, was like the guy that created Marvel as we know it. Stan was this iconoclastic storyteller, taking the medium of comic books, these silly little things that no one really thought were that serious or important. He used them to address real-world issues like gender equality and war and poverty, and in the case of X-Men, civil rights, comic books. This past week, as a little piece of my childhood nostalgia died with Stan Lee, I I came across this quote. You'll see it on the screens. It says this. Stan Lee said, my theory about why people like superheroes is that when we were all kids, we all loved to read fairy tales. Fairy tales are all about things bigger than life. Giants, witches, trolls, dinosaurs, and dragons, and all sorts of imaginative things. Then you get a little bit older and you stop reading fairy tales, but you don't ever outgrow your love for them. Stan Lee knew the power of a good story. He knew it probably better than anyone. He knew that we live in a world that is in love with good storytelling. I think the Apostle Paul knew the same thing when he was alive. When I read the end of Romans 15, these words fly off the page at me. I don't think, let's pull these back up. It says, in this way, I have a goal to preach the gospel where they haven't heard of Christ yet. So that I won't be building on someone else's foundation. Instead, as it's written, Paul says, those who hadn't been told about him will see and those who hadn't heard will understand. In this way, I have a goal, he says, to preach the gospel where they haven't heard of Christ yet. Paul knew that the church had something that no one else in the world had. But something he knew that the world would need. They had a story. When you strip everything else away from the church, I think it's a story that remains. Not the story of a superhero who wears a cape, but the story of a savior who wears a crown. Paul lived in a land where fairy tales were commonplace, where figures like Hercules and Athena and Zeus dominated the minds and hearts of the world. And he knew the church held a story that outdid them all, not because it was flashier, but because it was real. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just a blockbuster, it is a life changer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that feeds the 5,000 and gives sight to the blind and addresses the needs of the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls people together and creates the bonds of peace and generates community out of individuals. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads us in the way of the greatest love and calls us to a cross far beyond just being nice. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that says lepers and centurions and prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles and Jews and women and men and slaves and free people are all granted a seat at the Lord's heavenly banquet. It's the story of God and Christ that we bear and offer to a world that is hungry for storytellers. The church is first and foremost the steward of a story. Not that we simply tell people about Jesus. If that's what you think I'm talking about, I'm not. We are stewards of a story in that we invite people to claim their role in the story of God. I can't ever be an X-Man, no matter how hard I try. But I can be a resurrected child of God. I won't ever be an Avenger. 
but I can be a kingdom builder here today in this moment. When we forget that we are called first to steward the story of Christ, we end up distracted by many things that are important, that are critically important, but aren't the most important thing. Paul is calling us to all remember that we are stewards first, stewards of God's great story. And we've been commissioned by God to invite others into his story, and everything we are lives in service to that mission. Our world may be divided and the church may be changing, but our purpose continues and the story lives on. The story is the church, and the church is the story. Whom will you tell? Let us pray. Gracious God, God of creation, God who dreams up universes, God who weaves stories in ways that we can't even comprehend, remind us why we are here. Have the last word in our hearts. Some of us are called to address need. Some of us feel called to build community. Some of us feel called to teach others in the way of Jesus. Some of us feel called to simply be ourselves in your presence and to lead others in that way as well. All of us are called to those things first and foremost because it's your story, it's your son, it's our savior who changed our life. God, help us to be the church in this changing time. To remember that while there are a great many things we can do, the one thing we must do is steward the story of your love. Because when people hear a story like that, not one of superheroes and capes, but of saviors and crowns, one of sacrifice, one of suffering and one of love and joy and mercy, God, it does things that we can't even prepare for. It takes us places we can't even dream of going. So keep the main thing in front of our eyes and inside of our hearts as we move forward as the church. That if we are not telling the story, if we are not inviting others into your story, we're simply not the church. God, we give you thanks. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.